All right, so we are going through First John, and what we are in now is First John 2, 5 through 11. So we are progressing. We are progressing. And so verse 5 of 1 John 2, But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So uh, John, John is clearly telling us that there is something that we can know. All right, he's clearly telling us that there is something that we can know. And this knowing is associated with our abiding, specifically our abiding in him. And how is the best way that we can abide in him is that we abide in his word. We keep his word. Uh, uh, you know, we, we keep his word, uh, we obey his word. And it is by abiding in him, abiding in his word, that we can come to know uh, this the joy of fellowship that John talks is, is talking to us about in this epistle. And uh, that's that's really what we want to come around to. We want to have such a a rich fellowship with God that it that it's evident in our lives. And so that's the question for me: is what's an indicator? That my fellowship with God is as it should be. I mean, according to 1 John 1, 9, I have assurance that when I am aware of sin in my life, then I have God's forgiveness and God's cleansing for that sin. So there is that assurance that I have, because that's what God's Word says. Also, I know that I have an advocate in heaven, 1 John 2, 1 through 2, who's up there interceding on my behalf and and praise God. And not only do I have an advocate, but I also have a, a, a covering which is Jesus Christ, my propitiation. He is, he is my covering for my sin. So because of that, I am, I am assured of my belonging to the family of God. I'm secure in Christ. In other words, I don't have to do anything to keep that security. Uh, Jesus Christ is my security. And that's what I, that's what I trust in. So already we see that we have these assurances. According to God's word. So the next thing is, uh, what about my fellowship with God? During that time that I am spending under the sun, you know, how, what is my assurance that I have that I have fellowship with God, that I am in fellowship with God? And I believe this is what John is beginning to address now, starting in verse 5 all the way uh, down through verse 11. And so there are certain things that uh, we uh, can be assured of. So I guess the question, and I, I failed to put it up here on the board, but it is on your study guide, how do we come to know God? How do we come to know God? Now, as I mentioned before, uh, the word know is an important word in this epistle. The word know is a very important word in, in this epistle. And uh, there are certain things that we can know. Now, um, bear with me. Um, in this life, we can we can know things um, through our senses, can't we? Right? Uh, we can know things through our senses. We interact with our environment. We associate with our environment uh, through our five physical senses. Uh, what are those senses? I mean, there's a, there's a touch and there's sight, there's hearing, there's taste and there's smell. Right? So we can, um, 
learn about things through our senses. A, a Harvard study, I thought this was kind of interesting, a Harvard study uh, uh, um, found a strong link between uh, smells and odors and, and a person's memory. Uh, according to this study, odors are handled by the olfactory bulb, whatever that is, in your brain. And that's uh, in the front of your brain, and it sends information to uh, other areas of your of uh, that processing center, whatever that is up in your brain, that central processing center. What would they call that in, in computers? Is that your CPU or whatever that is? I don't know what it is. But it sends it to that processing center in your brain, and it's these odors have a direct route to this to this system, and so um, odors are very strong um, memory triggers. And I know that's true in my own life because um, whenever I smell a diesel truck, I know it's weird, but whenever I smell diesel, that brings back very strong, vivid, even visual memories of when I used to live in Athens, Greece, because when I would go to school, it was always on a diesel bus. And I could, you know, and it just brings back those memories as I pass by the Acropolis and all this kind of stuff. So all these visions. So, you know, that's, that's just one of those ways. Another way we can know is through our experiences. Right? Our experiences. Uh, experiences sometimes can shape how we think or how we react or, or how we respond, uh, to certain situations, even to people. Right? If we have a bad experience with somebody, right? That, that can affect your thinking. That can, I mean, a, um, you know, a, a child can be warned by their mom, don't touch that, that's hot. Alright? For a little while, the child may say, okay. But what will that child inevitably do? Yeah, you know what it's gonna do. It's gonna go over and it's gonna touch what mom says is hot. Well, as soon as it touches that which is hot, right, then when mommy says, don't touch that, it's hot, because of that experience, they won't touch it. They won't touch it. And that's true with a lot of people. Um, and we also can come uh, to know through observation. You know, we we use our intellect and we look at things, we pay attention to things, we figure these things out, we study them, so forth and so on. So on your study guide, the point to all of this is this. So on your study guide, I think it's your very first blank. God has enabled us to know a great deal by equipping us physically and mentally and emotionally. Folks, we are working from a study guide. Do you want one back there in the back? I gave them one. You gave them one? Okay. Shane, it's good to see you. Do you want a study guide? Okay. All right. All right. So physically, mentally, and emotionally. Physically, mentally, and emotionally. So when God created Adam, he created Adam with all the essential capabilities for fellowship and for worship. And for relationship, he he gave Adam all the essentials uh, that make a relationship with God possible. To make a relationship with God possible. Um, God is not some abstract idea, is he? No, he's not. God is, is not the, some myth. He's not the product of man's evolution to try to explain 
the mysteries of nature, God is a capital P person. Right? He has personality. We know that God feels emotions. We know that God is, is a supreme intellect. He's, he's wise. He's, he's understanding. God is a person. God is a person. And he created man as a person. So that man and God could fellowship and have a relationship. And when God spoke everything into existence, he spoke everything into existence with a purpose. With a purpose. Uh, to entertain the idea that God would do anything impulsively or without any purpose, you're failing to misunderstand who God really is. You're failing to understand, you know, uh, the nature of God. When God began his creation, and I know I've asked this question before and you guys might know the answer, but when God uh, first began his work of creation, uh, what was the very first thing that he created? Was it the sun and the stars? Was it the planets? Any idea? Light? Okay. No. No. The very first thing that God created was life. Life. Turn to Job chapter 38. The very first thing that God created was life because God is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Job, uh, jo- job. <laughs> Job. I remember when I was a brand new believer, I was reading Job out of the book of Job. No, it's Job. Job 38 verse 1. This is God, uh, this is God uh, questioning Job. So Job's on the hot seat. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? He says, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will determine of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? So what is he talking about here? Creation. Declare if thou understand, if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Now look here, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God created the angelic host first. He created life first. And those angelic beings had the extreme privilege of seeing God speak everything into existence so that they could praise the wonder and the glory of God. So the very first thing that God created was life, because God is life. And as, as magnificent and as wonderful as the angelic host is, their primary purpose is to be ministers to the Most High God. He created them to be ministers, to be servants. Psalms 103.20 says, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his, that do his pleasure. That's why they were created. They were to be his ministers. They were to do his bidding. 
Psalms 104.4, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. So that was the purpose of the angelic host. God's a different creature. Our God's, man is a different creature, not God. Man is a different creature. When God created man, he created man for the purpose of worship and fellowship. Worship and fellowship. Now bear with me. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now this is God speaking to Isaiah. And of course this is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. But take note what God said here in Isaiah. He says, he says, whom I uphold mine elect and whom my soul delighteth. Do you ever think about that? God has a soul. God has a soul. Genesis 2-7, remember what it said about man when he was created? And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living spirit. It's not what it says. A living soul. A living soul. I looked and I couldn't find it. Angels don't possess a soul, folks. Only man does. Only man possesses a soul. Jeremiah 12, 7. I have forsaken mine house, I have left mine heritage, I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. That's God again speaking of, 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 the, of the seed of Abraham, of the Jews. They're rebellious, they're, they're turning against God, and God, he's, he's going to have to turn them over to their enemies. But he says here, I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of their enemies. That's God speaking. These folks are hurting God's soul. They're out of fellowship with God. And God has to turn them over to their enemies. There's another passage where the Lord is lamenting in his soul. In John chapter 12, verse 27, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. The whole point is this. God created man a living soul so that man's soul and God's soul could fellowship one with another. That's why the soul is so important. That's why the soul is so important. But when sin was introduced by the disobedience of Adam, this relationship between God and man became severely damaged. In fact, it was ruined. It was ruined because of man's sin. Man's nature became such that intimacy with God was no longer the same. No longer the same. When man sinned, that relationship became ruined. It wasn't the same as it once was. Any of you who have had children who have rebelled, you still love that child, 
But due to that rebellion, that relationship is not the same anymore, is it? You still love that child, but that relationship is now damaged. It's now uh, not the same. God still loved Adam and Eve. He still loved Adam and Eve. And even though uh, man had now ruined his relationship and his purpose due to sin, God still loved Adam. And you know why I know God still loved Adam? Because the sentence of death wasn't immediately carried out, was it? Right? Because he said, the day you sin, you will die. But he didn't die. Instead, what did God do? What did God do? When Adam and Eve showed up with fig leaves, what did God do? He provided them with a covering. A covering. And what was that covering? It was the skin of an innocent animal. And I dare say it was a lamb. I dare say a lamb. God provided a covering the death of an innocent to cover the nakedness of the guilty. Hmm. Who does that remind you of? Who does that remind you of? Then we have the very first promise of the Bible given to fallen man in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That promise was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That promise was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That damaged relationship and that purpose that God had created man for, Jesus Christ has now restored. What Adam lost, Jesus Christ has restored through his propitiatory work on the cross. That's why we spent so much time in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, about Jesus Christ's advocacy and Jesus Christ being our propitiation. That's where your security lies, folks. Not in what you're doing, what he, but what, what he's already done for us. Romans 5.10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. The atonement. The covering. And if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ... That fellowship is now restored. That fellowship is now restored. But what Adam had lost in the fall, Christ has regained upon the cross. First Peter chapter 1, 2 through um, 4 says this. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. Huh. So where is my, where is my peace coming from? Where is my grace going to come from? Through the knowledge of God? Where do I learn about God? In His Word? 
and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. That tells me that I lack nothing. He's provided it all through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us great, exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. In other words, what Peter is saying is the, the, the day that you were saved, guess who took up residence in your life? The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God. So on your study guide, not only are we equipped physically and mentally and emotionally, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, on your study guide, God has also equipped us spiritually. And that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to teach us all things. So not only physically, mentally, and emotionally, now spiritually. We lack nothing. 1 John 2.27 But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you. And you need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, and even, it is, even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. Again, John 14.26 But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. It's the Holy Spirit of God that makes this book alive in your life. It's the Holy Spirit of God which makes this book alive and active in your life. Now, what does this knowing God look like? That was the original question. What does this knowing God look like? And I'll be bold enough to say that if you really want to begin in your understanding of what this looks like, then there's really no better place to go than to go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look at and study and read about the disciples and their interaction and their relationship with Jesus Christ. Examine those men in their relation with Jesus and how Jesus in turn related to these men. That's a good place to start right there. That's a good place to start right there. Just as John began this epistle, you guys still in 1 John? What does he say there in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. And that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We see the senses involved, we see the mind involved, we see the emotions involved, we see everything involved. In this knowing Jesus Christ. 
And through these disciples' senses and observations and experiences, they came to know the word of life, that eternal life, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we may not have Jesus physically before us like they did, but we do have his word. And other than the actual physical appearance of Jesus before us, we don't lack anything in knowing the same kind of fellowship that these men knew. That's what John's saying here. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? So on your study guide, we're going to look at... um, Three points of knowing uh, of, of knowing about fellowship with God, fellowship with the Father. Okay, and here's your first one. And the first word is association. I couldn't think of a different word. Association. And then the two words following in relation to association would be salvation. And sanctification. Salvation and sanctification. So association, and then followed by salvation and sanctification. So the the, the very first um, point in uh, knowing one's fellowship with the Father is association. Association. And this involves everything from... um, Having a relationship, uh, being involved, uh, knowing the likes, the dislikes of this person, um, being occupied with what they're occupied with, being engaged with what they're engaged with. And did we, do we not see that with the disciples in the Gospels? When Jesus said, come follow me, these men were associated with Jesus and involved with everything that was going on with Jesus. They heard his teachings, they saw his miracles, they saw how he interacted with different people. They were involved. They were associating with Jesus. They were associating with Jesus. Turn to Mark, well it's right there on your, I think it's on your study guide, Mark chapter 8. Okay. Uh, you know, in, in Jesus' day, there was a lot of opinion about Jesus. Everybody had all sorts of different opinions about Jesus. You know, some thought uh, one thing about Jesus, others thought other things about Jesus. And Jesus was very aware of all these differing opinions about himself. <clears throat> but those who he was most concerned with as far as their opinion of who he was, guess who that was? It was his disciples. That's who he was concerned of. That's what he was concerned with, is what is your opinion? So look here on Mark 8, verse 27. And I think it's on your study guide. And Jesus went out and his disciples in the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. In verse 30, And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. But whom 
say ye that I am? For us, that's a crucial question for us to answer. In our associating with the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a crucial question that we must honestly answer for ourselves, personally. I can't answer for my wife, and she can't answer for me. This is something you have to answer for yourself. Now stay with me, I'm going to go on a a sidetrack, but I'll come back. Okay? Uh, people are interesting creatures. Um, one of the things that, that make people interesting is, is often how they interact with others. Um, and there's lots of types, but generally you can boil them down into three basic types of individuals. Uh, this is on your study guide. And there's the first type, there's the loner. There's the loner. I think maybe the word introvert might apply. Uh, these are people who, che- who choose to live independently from others as much as possible. They take care of themselves first and foremost. Um, and sometimes with these kind of folks, they really don't care about other people. You know, it, it's all about me, myself, and I. The loners. Sometimes we might call these uh, rugged individualists. You know, these are guys who go up in the mountains and build a cabin and all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, Then there's some that they're this way because they've been hurt. Somebody's hurt them. And so they withdraw because of the hurt. They don't want to be hurt again. Uh, Some folks are just shy. They're just insecure. And they get all kind of anxious and worked up when they find themselves in a, in a crowd or they find themselves, you know, the focus of attention. So, you know, they, they try to avoid, uh, uncomfortable social interaction as much as they can. Or it could be sometimes they have something to hide, <laughs> right? And so they don't want to be exposed, so they stay to themselves. But whatever it is, you know, there are those loners. So on your study guide, uh, unfortunately, there are some who attempt to know God in this way or have a relationship with God in this way. Uh, these people would be your self-imposed hermits. You know, we talked about the extremes. There are some folks who are spiritual hermits. And they keep their relationship with God purely on a, this is your blank, personal level personal level Uh, it's a personal thing with me there's lots of times I've I've spoken to people about their faith and well I believe it's a personal thing now you keep it to yourself and you don't try to impose your beliefs on others now you don't have to live on a mountaintop to be a spiritual hermit you can do that successfully even within a church You're just not someone who shares their faith. You keep it to yourself. You keep it bottled up. Uh, That's not a not a very healthy way to go. I mean, we saw that in this this uh, pandemic we went through. 
I'm always reading reports and, and the consequences of folks who had isolated themselves and how that had kind of messed with their heads a little bit. It's not good. What, is it, what, is, what does God say? It's not good that man should dwell alone. It's not a very healthy way to go. So on your study guide, this is not a healthy approach in one's relationship with God. Because sometimes this approach leads to some pretty bizarre behavior and some wacky ideas about God. So it's not, it's not healthy. Then, and this is, this is an on your study guide, and I'm, I'm afraid I didn't leave you a whole lot of room to write notes. There's another kind, and these are the, what I call the, uh, the audacious. The audacious type of person. These folks are a little more aggressive about life. You know, they grab all the gusto they can. Uh, they take on life. They, they, you know, they, they charge, they, 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 they achieve their goals. Uh, whether through conflict or controversy, as long as that goal in life is achieved, everything else is secondary. And unfortunately, sometimes these audacious types, uh, they don't think anything about stepping on the little man to get to that next level in life. Um, a lot of your leaders are like that. A lot of your political leaders are like that. So on your study guide, there are even those in the church who seek to lord over God's people. To gain prominence is your blank in the church through force or will and personality and politics. Uh, in First uh, John chapter 3, John is talking about such an individual. We're not going to go there. Um, let me see if I can find his name real quick. Uh, Diotrephes was the guy's name. He says, Diotrephes who loveth to have the preeminence among them. And there are those who like to have that preeminence. They like to be the ones to shine. They like to be the ones that's in the spotlight. They like to be the ones that everybody is focused on them. There are those types. On your study guide, Paul warned of these types in Acts 20, verses 20 through 28, or 28 through 30. He identified them as grievous wolves. Is your blank. Not sparing the flock, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And there are those in the church, that's, that's really what they're all about. To create a following. Now on your study guide, these could be your seducers. Here's your blank. Or your antichrist, your false teachers, that John is warning these people, warning us in his epistle. There are those out there who want to create a following for themselves. There are these audacious types. And we gotta be, we gotta be careful. We gotta be careful. First Peter 5 2 says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, not to get rich, but of a ready mind, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. You know, we don't want to be lords over God's heritage. And that's the way many cultists are. That's what, that's the way many, um, religious legalists behave. You know, it's my way or the highway. Uh, often their authority is, 
is what um, supersedes God's word. And that's not, that's not healthy for a church. They have a tendency to beat the sheep rather than lead the sheep. So that's your audacious types. And, and they're everywhere. They're in business, they're in politics, they're in church. And then there's the third type. And I call these type the uh, fellow laborers. The fellow laborers. So on your study guide, I think it's on page two. Uh, there are those who are of one mind. Working toward a common greater good. Accomplished through cooperation and mutual assistance. Now that's a sign of a healthy church. That's a sign of a healthy church. Philippians 4, 3, Paul's writing, he says, And I treat thee also true yoke fellow. Help those women which labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with, with other of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul is calling these, these Philippian believers his, his yoke fellow, his fellow laborers. And in my opinion, the Apostle Paul was the greatest Christian that ever lived, but yet, the man was so humble that he was, he called these uh, other believers his yoke fellows and his fellow laborers. And that's a good attitude to maintain in ministry. That is a good attitude to maintain in ministry is to look upon each other as yoke fellows, as fellow laborers, because when you do that, then that kind of eliminates that competition that sometimes settles in in ministries. You know, one will versus another will, both at odds? No, that's not how a ministry is going to grow. That's not how a ministry is going to flourish. If you've got, if you've got people in that ministry bumping heads over silly little things, because, you know, it's, it's my way or the highway or whatever is going on, that's not good for any ministry. Any ministry. So on your study guide, um, a church that has this mentality, uh, this would be the church united in the common faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you're united in the common faith, then you're going you're gonna to seek to fulfill his will through cooperating with each other. Not bickering and fighting. You're going to assist each other to fulfill that mission, that purpose. When there's infighting, and intrigue, and whispering, and murmuring in a ministry, it's going to fall flat on its face. I've seen it so many times. I've seen it so many times. And, and when the Lord Jesus Christ was, was with these men, that's, this is exactly how he was training these men. To work as a unit, to work together. And whenever these issues of pride showed up, he dealt with it. He dealt with it. These men had to learn that there is a greater purpose than me, myself, and I. 
And that's the problem with many believers. They can't get beyond that unholy trinity of ego. Now, what do we refer to this training as in this church? Discipleship. But unfortunately, with many, that's just lip service and not reality. Discipleship is more than just going through 16 lessons, folks. It's more than just going through D2. It's more than just going through HBI. You know, these men, what was the trade of some of these men? They were fishermen, right? And they already knew the value of, of, of co-laboring being fishermen. They already knew that. I mean, how many times do you read in the Gospels when the net became full, full and they called over their partners to help pull that net in because it was so heavy? Because they couldn't do it by themselves. What Jesus Christ simply did was is he took these inherent values of their trade and he elevated those values to a higher purpose. That's why some of you in here who are very talented in what you are doing... You allow God to elevate that talent to a higher purpose than for you to simply shine and look good before others. Mark 1.17 said, And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Each of these men chosen by the Lord, they had their own personalities, they had their own character traits, they, they all were kind of quirky. They were all kind of quirky. Some were rash and quick-tempered. I mean, what did Peter do to that fellow in the garden? Chopped his ear off. (laughs) Yeah. Others were more reserved, more contemplative. But Jesus used them all, no matter what personality type they were. He used them all. Each with their own strengths, each with their own weaknesses. Jesus trained them all. Jesus taught them all. Jesus discipled them all. And these men were used by God to turn the world upside down. Even today. Even today we can do, He can do the same thing with us. If we cooperate. So getting back to Mark chapter 8. When Jesus asked them this question, but whom say ye that I am, it was very crucial in how they answered that question. Very crucial. In light of all the opinions that people held, it was very crucial that the answer would be, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's a lot there, folks. There's a lot there that people miss. Tragically, today in many churches, there's this confusion about this very question. And it's a little wonder why Christianity is so anemic today. Because they don't know how to rightly answer this question. They give maybe the Sunday school answer. But they really don't know Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why is that? Because it falls upon the teachers and the seducers and the influencers 
that are so popular today in Christianity. That's why Paul warns in 1 John about these seducers. If you read through 1 John and you miss that, you're missing a big, major part of this epistle. Folks may know facts about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Many will confess Jesus as Savior, but as far as Him being Lord, they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. So an association with the Lord in lieu of the example of these men, this is your first point in knowing God. It's page two, I believe, on your study guide. The first point in knowing God and fellowship is obedience to His Word. Obedience to His Word. Do you not have a study guide? I can't write in. Okay. Now, with what little time I have, the very first act of obedience that I'm going to bring up, uh, maybe some of you might even, may not even have thought of this as an act of obedience. Okay, but nonetheless, it is the probably uh, um, the most vital. It's what starts everything, as far as obedience to God's word is concerned. So, on your study guide, under the letter A, this knowing God, this being associated with God, must begin with salvation. And this salvation is dependent upon what you know of Jesus. Now you guys are going to say, well, that's a no-brainer. But you'd be surprised how many people struggle with this first important matter in associating with God. Uh, Well, let me get into this. Romans 10:15 is that on your study guide? Yes. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report, so then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Just like the people in Mark chapter 8, there are folks out there today that have all sorts of opinions about who Jesus is. All sorts of opinions about who Jesus is. To some, Jesus is a prophet. To some, Jesus is nothing more than a, than a moral teacher. To some, Jesus was nothing more than a great humanitarian that was misunderstood. Others think of Jesus as nothing more than a martyr who died for a great cause, whatever that cause is. But as far as creator of the world, as far as God in the flesh, as far as the Son of God coming to save mankind, you be surprised how many do not, right here in this country, church-going people who do not believe that. When I was in India, a daughter of one of the indigenous pastors showed me a wall, and on this wall was a portrait of all these Hindu deities. But then she brought me to a particular portrait, and it was a portrait of, of Jesus. As you know, he's always portrayed with the, the beard and the long hair. 
And that's an issue with the, with the evangelism in India because they've been trained in their culture to believe in all these different deities that when you speak about Jesus, he's just another deity to believe in, another God in their pantheon of gods. And you have to get them to understand who Jesus really is in order for them to truly understand salvation. And in America today, we've got a pantheon of opinions about who Jesus is. And see, I can go until a quarter after. So I looked up some things. And uh, this is the influence of Gnosticism in our country. And I'm just talking about our country. Uh, the vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real historical people, person. Okay, so most people in America believe that Jesus was a real historical person, actually born, lived, and died in Israel. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, and they break it down in age groups. The older folks, which I think might be you know, myself and some of us others, not everybody. Among the older folks, 92% um, uh, believe in a historical Jesus. 90%. Then you drop down to the next generation. Uh, it goes down to 87%. And then you go down to the younger generation, the 20-somethings, you know, the college, the college age, 20-somethings and younger. It drops down to 55%. 55% believe that Jesus was an actual historical person. That's quite a drop. And we're just talking three generations. Uh, though Jesus, though they believe that Jesus was an actual historical person, he was not God. He was not God. This is kind of interesting. That older generation that I was talking about, that 92% that believed he was an actual person, only 62% believed that he was actually God of that older generation. And then as you go down, it drops down to 42%, and then it drops down to 48%, and then it drops down to 35%. So the younger generation don't believe that he was God. Another um, question was asked. <clears throat> Half of Americans are divided on whether, gen- uh, whether Jesus was sinless or not. Uh, across the demographics... Uh, 52% believe that Jesus sinned like any other man. Have you guys ever heard about Jesus having an affair with Mary Magdalene? With some people, that's taken root. So they believe that Jesus sinned just like everybody else sins. 46% says, no, Jesus never sinned. And then 2% says, we're not sure. We don't know. Most Americans will say that they have made some sort of commitment to Jesus. 
whatever that, however you define that commitment. While the majority of Americans report such a commitment, some groups are significantly more likely to have done so than others. Women, for example, are more likely than men to have made a personal commitment to Jesus. That's why you see in a lot of churches, it's mainly the women who are the movers and shakers in those churches, and in the men, they kind of sit in the back. You know what, you know what the least likely ethnic group is to commit to Jesus is? White Americans. White Americans. White Americans are the least likely ethnic group to be committed to Jesus. Only six in ten white Americans report having done so, having committed to Jesus, compared to eight in ten black Americans and nearly two-thirds of all other non-white Americans. Uh, have committed to Jesus. And this is the reason. The more money people make, the less likely they feel the need to make a commitment to Jesus. Those who make more than $100,000 a year are less uh, likely to uh, make a commitment. Those who make fifty to hundred hundred thousand to fifty or fifty hundred thousand, they're they're more likely. And then sixty five percent of those who make fifty thousand dollars and less, they'll make a commitment to Jesus. But what is that commitment based on? You know how much money you make. And for all of these folks who make a commitment, they look at this commitment as a first step in becoming a Christian. That's that Gnostic belief of earning your way into heaven. How do we get into heaven? Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. And that brings us to the last point. Most Americans are conflicted in their minds between faith in Jesus Christ alone or good deeds as a way to get into heaven. Uh, Many believe they'll go into heaven, not so much because of their faith in Christ dying for their sins, but because they're good people. That's the majority of Americans today. And we're talking church goers. Where are they getting that from? They're getting it from their teachers. They're getting it from their teachers. They're getting it from the seducers and the Gnostic preachers that are out there. The belief between Christ as their personal Savior to believe in good works, two-thirds of Americans believe that's the way it goes. Two-thirds of Americans believe that's, that's the way it goes. So on your study guide, and we're going to stop right here, this knowledge of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God is crucial. Crucial to our understanding if we desire to fellowship with God. And we'll talk more about that when we meet uh, next Sunday.